0: My name is Jen Lennox, and you are listening to The Hex Files, a podcast that focuses on the dark side of art, history, culture, and crime, with new episodes airing every full moon. to the hex files podcast thank you guys so much for tuning in with me today so the moon is full in aquarius tonight um, but there's a couple other full or special things about this full moon that i just wanted to share with you guys so it's the first central lunar eclipse since june 15th 2011 and it will actually be the longest lunar eclipse of the century it's pretty cool I'm not going to do too long of an intro on this episode just because this episode is pretty long as is and I think rightfully so given the subject matter there's definitely a lot to cover but there's a few things that I just want to go over really quick. Those of you who are familiar with the podcast may already know that we also have a blog as well, which can be found at hexfilescollective.com. It's a blog that I write with a few friends of mine, hence the word collective. Um, We put up cool content pretty regularly. Uh, My friend Tess does a weekly feature uh, that you may already be familiar with called Murder Monday. And now we also have a new weekly feature, Weird Wednesday. Um, there's a couple uh, posts up there already. I did an article on death and mourning traditions in the Victorian era. And then Steve recently wrote a post about a city in California where the dead actually outnumber the living a 1,000 to 1. So if that sounds like it's something that's up your alley, definitely head over to hexfilescollective.com and check those out. And be sure to check back in regularly because, like I said, we post content up there all the time, including those two weekly features. And then we also now have stickers. So if you guys want to get your hands on one of those, all you have to do is write us a review either on iTunes or Stitcher, take a screenshot of it and send that along with your mailing address to us and we'll send you a sticker. You can send that to us either on Instagram or by email. Our Instagram handle is at hexfilescollective and our email is admin at hexfilescollective.com. That's all I've got for you guys. Before the episode begins, here's just a quick word from our friends over at Southern Spirits Podcast. Hey y'all, I'm Leah Lawrence.
1: I'm her husband, Mitch Lawrence. And we host the Southern Spirits Podcast. Each week, we'll sip on a Southern brewed craft beer or wine and toss back a Southern distilled liquor, and I'll let y'all know how I feel about them with a review. And after we are good and tipsy, I'll bust out a couple of strange, spooky tales from the American South. We are all about true crimes, mysteries, paranormal activity, and cryptozoology. Basically, if it's Southern and boozy, we'll drink it. And if it's Southern and weird, we'll talk about it.
0: So join us as we drink our way through the folklore of the South. Find the Southern Spirits podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Bye, y'all. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Hex Files. Happy full moon. Uh, We have a pretty cool episode for you guys today. Um, We've actually been waiting to do this episode for quite some time. A lot of research went into this one. Um, I have my friend Erica here with me today. So go ahead and say hi, Erica. Hi, everybody. So tonight we're gonna to be doing um, our episode is gonna be on Columbine, which I know, even to this day, even though it's been 20 years, is still a bit of a controversial topic. And I'll just explain really quick why I kind of felt so compelled, excuse me, ugh, so compelled to do this episode. I, you know, started reading Dave Collins' book Columbine, which if you have not read that book, You absolutely have to. It's so interesting, and he did such an incredible job writing it. But what I found when I started reading it is that a lot of the things that I thought I knew about Columbine are actually not true. Because the media definitely went crazy with this case, and everything just got totally warped. So everything that I thought I knew was Almost not true. So I kind of felt as though I needed to do this episode to kind of clear the air for a lot of people who, like me, didn't necessarily understand uh, the truth behind this tragedy. And Erica, I reached out to you because I know that you also kind of have this fascination with this case. I mean, I don't even know if you can call it a case per se, but I know that you had a fascination, you know, with Columbine. So do you want to speak to that at all? Yeah, I
1: honestly don't know what it is. You know, obviously, you and I both are very much into anything with serial killers or murders or or that type of homicidal behavior. But since since it happened, probably, something has always stuck out to me about this in particular. And I honestly, to this day, cannot pinpoint why. But maybe it's because of I'm so intrigued by Dylan and Eric's motives. Um, the, the time it took place the, the media frenzy everything with the church that went into it it just turned into it was a tragedy from the start but it turned into literally one of the biggest things ever and I'm pretty sure it was Fox or CNN's highest rated news story ever in existence so yes. that just shows the impact that it, it has had on us culturally Considering at this point in our country there are
0: school shootings, like, I feel like once a week at this point. Absolutely. I mean, it's you know? it's insane to think how much, so much of this information still resonates today because this really was one of, you know, I, obviously there were school shootings before this occurred, but you're right about the media frenzy. I mean, this just blew everything up and nothing was really ever the same after Columbine happened and now we're still kind of dealing with this trickling down of these issues that kind of really started with Columbine.
1: Yeah. I mean there were there were definitely a handful of, of school shootings that weren't really reported on the level this was and, you know, like the main the main um, thing they wanted to copy was was Timothy McVeigh's Oklahoma bombing. That's what they were aiming for. Um, and I can only imagine if, if their plan had went through what could have potentially happened. But it's just, it's it just, I don't know what it is about this. that, you Like you said, there's still so many unanswered questions 20 years later, and it still has such an impact that um, on, on its 19th anniversary, they had a walk of survivors of one of the most recent school shootings. So it just shows that it, it has just played a huge part on, you know, my life growing up and and the culture that we live in today, really.
0: Absolutely, and I don't want to touch on this too much because I know people can be kind of sensitive or whatever, but it's amazing to know that, you know, Columbine happened 20 years ago, and there are probably so many things that could have been done to prevent all these school shootings that we've seen since, and I think that there's something really to be said about that. But again, you know, people... People get upset when anyone seems to bring up anything, you know, political anymore, so, you know, we'll, we'll focus. Course. And it's,
1: I don't want to either. It's just in the realm of, you know, a, like, you know, a school shooting, and I and I clump them together. Every situation's different, but in the end, it's, it's a school shooting, so...
0: Absolutely. And not to mention, there are people who commit these shootings who still talk about Eric and Dylan to this day, which is also something that's pretty terrifying. It just, again, goes to show how much this tragedy really resonated with the world. And a lot of these kids now, I mean, these school shootings that are taking place now, you know, these kids were probably not even born when Columbine happened, you know? No, no, they
1: definitely, definitely were not. Most of them were not. And if they, and if they, were, they were, they were babies.
0: Yeah, exactly. So. Ugh, crazy. All right, so let's go ahead and get into it. We'll start with the culprits, I guess. I don't know how else to address these kids. <laughs> Eric... Eric and Dylan, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. At the time of the shootings, Eric was 18 and Dylan was 17. And when I started off by saying that a big part of why I felt so compelled to do this episode was because, you know, I didn't necessarily have the facts correct. The biggest thing with the media is that they were made out to seem as though they were these nerds who were bullied, and one day they just snapped, and that was not the case at all.
1: No, I mean, it made them seem like, now, there was a known, it was known around Columbine from pretty much the whole student body that there was a bullying issue there, like most high schools. Were Dylan and Eric on the bottom of that bullying totem pole? No. It's not like going to school is hell to them every day. I'm sure they were picked on, but, like, Eric was a narcissist. On other people, too. And the media painted them to be, like, these two total outcasts, you know, quote, goth outcasts that just hated, hated everybody because of the way they were treated. And in retrospect, like, they had a
0: handful of really good friends. Right. They were, they were somewhat popular. I mean, Eric had no trouble pulling girls that, like, none of this, none of these things that appeared to be an issue for them were necessarily true. And Dylan, on the other hand, was a little bit, you know, he's skewed more in the direction of a little bit of the nerdy, um, you know, kind of hopeless romantic kind of a kid who couldn't really get a date kind of a thing. But, you know, you mentioned, just, just talking about Eric in general, he had this superiority complex. So he definitely was bullying people because he saw everyone else in the world around him as completely inferior to him and I believe Dylan adapted a little bit of that too as you can start to see in his journal entries as it becomes as it gets closer to what they call their judgment day
1: Mm -hmm. and you can definitely tell like you mentioned Dylan's journals in the beginning it's so sappy you know half of the entries are just drawings of hearts and and I can't remember the one name of the girl that um, he was in love with a girl that he went to high school with and all he wanted to do was be her boyfriend and bring her flowers and, and all of this mushy, lovey, romantic crap basically and on the other hand you look at Eric and I mean he wrote about rape fantasies which is the complete opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to women and looking you know at that part of their lives which plays a huge role in being a teenager Especially
0: teenage boy. Absolutely. And it just it also adds to what I think is very interesting about Eric and a lot this gets brought up in a lot. I believe it gets brought up in um Colin's book, but also in other podcasts that I've listened to, is that if we didn't know Eric Harris's name from Columbine, we would know him somehow. He would have been like the next Ted Bundy or something because he did have these these rape fantasies and, and all these things. And he, I mean, the clinical psychologist that worked on Columbine, you know, diagnosed Eric as a psychopath. So I feel like in some way, shape or form, we would have known Eric Harris's name regardless of whether or not Columbine had happened. Yeah, that's an excellent
1: point. Um, literal,
0: you know,
1: Colin quotes it all the time, textbook psychopath, um, narcissistic personality disorder huge grandiose view of himself. um, You know, had a superiority complex. Loved women, but expressed it in extremely horrible ways, like you know, rape fantasies. And just like you compared him to Bundy, you know, when we touch into them going on their missions, and one of them, they got caught and had to go to community service. Eric charmed the pants off of every single person there. He was handsome, he was young, he was smart was going to go to a good college his dad was in the marines for years like he played it so well just like bundy like bundy worked at a suicide crisis center like how how much more empathetic can you get from the outside when in reality he was raping and killing women all over
0: washington state right it's manipulation at it's its absolute finest a good comparison nonetheless Absolutely. And this is a this is a quote from Harris's journal that I just wanted to um, point out because I think it kind of really shows that he he wasn't being bullied and he really had the superiority complex. I mean, this was someone who was very mentally unstable. So, quote, "I want to tear a throat out with my own teeth like a pop can." I want to grab some weak little freshmen and just tear them apart like a fucking wolf. Strangle them, squish their head, rip off their jaw, break their arms in half, show them who is God. End quote. I just feel like that quote alone goes to show... Like, this this was not somebody who one day just said, you know what, I've had enough. Or, you know, whatever was going on with him. Because then the other issue of course was that he Eric moved all the time. Like you had already said, his father was involved in the military and in the infamous basement tapes, which if you're all at all familiar with Columbine already, you know about and and we'll be getting into that a little bit later, but Eric complains about this frequent moving, stating that he was always the new kid and therefore he was at the bottom of the food chain and had no chance to earn any respect and it just goes to show eric was just constantly looking for this sense of control he needed to be the top dog he refers to himself as god i mean if that doesn't get any more psycho than that then i i don't know what to say yeah i mean and it's Touching on like you know the media
1: frenzy and how they painted up to be outcast, they also wanted to put the blame on someone because that's what everybody wants to do in any type of case, you know.
0: Especially in a case so many where. Blame
1: to make everybody feel better because the question is always why? Why did you do it? Why was what was the motivation? Um, so everyone's like, well, the parents did a shitty job of raising them, so it's their fault. When in reality, Eric's parents were very supportive, and you know I have yet to read Sue Klebold's book, but. She loved her kids, and she loved Dylan until the day he died, and was always supportive of him. And He had a very, quote-unquote, normal childhood. So it goes to show, like, still, why?
0: Right. And and that's always the problem in these situations where, you know, you have these tragedies that end in suicide. You know, they want... Somebody wants to point the finger at somebody all the time, which is how it ended up being, it became The Parents and um, The Matrix films and um, Marilyn Manson, all of which, you know, The Parents we've already kind of touched on, but, you know, The Matrix and Marilyn Manson and all these things, they didn't even, they weren't even expressing that they were fans of of this, of Marilyn Manson Uh or The Matrix And it's just so interesting how, you know, people will do and say whatever just so that they can go to bed at night thinking that they've found someone to blame in a situation like this. Just because they can't blame, they they can't really blame the people who actually did it because they're not around to suffer the consequences of their actions.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's There's nothing else to say about that exactly.
0: So we talked a lot. I mean, we talked mostly about Eric. And then and then we have Dylan. We kind of touched he was he was depressed. He like just really all he wanted was a girlfriend. He was like you said kind of your typical sensitive teenage boy, but he Dylan's Fall is really that he saw his life as a failure which in a way is kind of tragic because he was only 17 years old he was so young he would barely lived any of his life and he was so convinced that his life was a failure at such a young age that he didn't think he had anything else to live for and he came across someone as impressionable as Eric Harris who and I feel fine saying this as much of a you know, master manipulator and, and the mastermind of, you know, Columbine as people put him out to be. I think Eric was too much of a pussy to have done this without Dylan. And I don't think uh, Dylan really, Dylan wasn't necessarily involved very much, but I think Eric just felt better having somebody by his side. It's, it's, and, it's, and
1: it's so odd because when you have, you know, the complex that Eric has, you figure that he would not care at all if there was anybody by his side or not while he's gunning down people and exploding homemade bombs. But, you know, I feel like at some point in time, if this never happened, Dylan would have probably committed suicide, whether in in high school or if he went on to college, because he was looking at colleges right before this happened. Um, But I feel like Eric would have made the news somehow in some awful way, and I think Dylan would have quietly slipped away Harming, physically harming nobody. You know, I think this, that he, Eric put these very horrible ideas in Dylan's already very depressed, impressionable head and almost almost like a minion because Dylan followed Eric everywhere. And you can see, I, I wish I could watch the basement tapes, which we obviously know we can't, but even Colin constantly said, During the tapes, and and even footage that you can see, Dylan is always searching for Eric's approval. You can just look it up to see if Eric nods yes or or just approves of his actions constantly.
0: Yeah, and Dylan was even described by people who knew him as being a quote-unquote follower. It's just, that was the nature of who Dylan was, and he just so happened to get linked up with the very wrong person. So let's talk yeah. a little bit about the like events leading up to the shootings, and you know I you did kind of touch on this very briefly, but they had what were called these missions, quote unquote, that were basically them just going around and committing mischief. Um, so they did have multiple run-ins with the law, and they were on the authorities' radar before Columbine even happened. In On January 30th of 1998, Dylan and Eric were caught stealing items out of a van and they went to that juvenile diversion program that you had talked about where they, Eric at least, passed with flying colors because he feigned all this regret. He even got an early release from the program because they thought he had turned around so much. Again, just a master manipulator. He wrote this letter to the victim um, of their theft, the guy who owned the van, that was, like, full of this bullshit empathy. But meanwhile, he's writing journal entries around the same time, which include the following passage, and again, I'm gonna just quote him directly because, I mean, his words are mind-blowing. So, quote, Isn't America supposed to be the land of the free? How come if I'm free, I can't deprive a stupid fucking dumb shit from his possessions if he leaves them sitting in the front seat of his fucking van in plain sight in the middle of fucking nowhere on a Friday fucking night. Natural selection. Fucker should be shot. Clearly, not someone who has any remorse, but hey, if it's going to get him out of this bullshit program or whatever, he's going to say whatever it takes. It's just,
1: nothing was going to stop him. Regardless, and we'll touch not only on the petty, uh, quote, missions they went on, but the run-ins with um, Judy and um, Judy Brown and, and Brooks, who Dylan grew up with. They were friends their whole lives, were Boy Scouts together. Um, and that also potentially could lead into, you know, why didn't Little Pit PD do more about Eric's behavior when Randy Brown had repeatedly reported Eric doing things to Brooks not petty stuff, like death threats on the internet, and um, you know, there was an instance where um, uh, Eric threw a rock at Brooke's car and it damaged the windshield and he said, you're going to pay for it, and Eric said, no, you're not, and it resulted in Eric jumping on you know Brooke's mother's car and scaring her, and it was just like, to the point that Brooke's father kept kept journal entries of all the times that he had interacted with Eric in a negative way or had contacted the police, and
0: they pretty much did absolutely nothing. Yep. In March of 1998, Brooks Brown's parents found a report uh, with the sheriff's office that Harris had threatened uh, Brooks' life on his website. He had this death list on his website, and Brooks's name was on it. Uh, authorities even applied for a warrant to search Eric's house, but it was never actually ex- executed. Um, And this was roughly um, a year, 13 months before Columbine happened. And at this time, I believe as well, and I don't have an exact account of when they started collecting their arsenal. But if they had, you know, used this search warrant for Eric's house, they probably would have found some of the bombs that he was starting to make. And essentially, this whole thing could have never happened. Yeah,
1: I mean, I know they didn't have guns yet, Uh, they didn't get guns closer um, to the shooting, and, you know, Eric turned 18 in the beginning of April, if I'm not mistaken, and the shooting was on April 20th, Um, so he was able to buy, uh, purchase a gun um, beforehand, but they also, I don't think at the time they had guns, but they did acquire guns when they were both still 17, and they either they either had the gun or the ammo and the cops sort of also
0: found that as well. Absolutely. It's just mind-boggling to think that this potentially could not have ha- like could not have gone down had the police just followed through with the brown's report. Like it's mind-boggling. it, it is So the basement tapes, we've kind of touched on them already. Um, Again, they are not available to the public. Um, I believe they will be at some point, although I I can't remember that information off the top of my head. But the basement tapes uh, were documented by a Jeffco Sheriff's officer the document's 10 pages long. Um, I'm going to put it on the blog for anyone who's interested in reading it in its entirety, but obviously it's it's too much to really go through. Uh, but I'll kind of, we're just going to cover some of the bigger points here. So at one point during the tapes, Eric and Dylan actually apologized to their co-workers. They say, you know, sorry, we had to do what we had to do. In that same clip, Eric states, it's a weird feeling knowing you're going to be dead in two and a half weeks. And at one point uh, in that same clip, he starts talking about how he wished he could have visited old friends in Michigan and appears to start crying. And he's like wiping a tear off his cheek before he reaches down and turns off the camera, which I find to be very odd, and I can't decide, obviously not seeing it for myself, if that's just Eric being manipulative again, or if there's some sort of, like, truth behind that. Yes, it's, it's, um, it's
1: definitely compelling, and I think you are correct. I think at some point in time over the next, I, I want to say, like, five years, maybe, ten years, this- they will be available to the public under some type of law after, I think, after, yeah, okay, I'm sorry, six years. So after 25 years after it happened, I think they are available to the public. Um, and they were obviously afraid to release them because of copycats um, or, or using any tactics that, you know, that, that Eric and Dylan may have used, that other students wanted to use, that they were planning something like this. Um, but, you know, even at the end of the tapes because, you know, we have the transcripts, you know, they apologize. It's like, sorry, I got to go, Mom, you know. Kind of like a video from Sleepaway Camp or something. Not like, hey, got to go. I'm going to get up to go home up get my school tomorrow. But it's just, it's, it's eerie to me that, that he's so nonchalant about it, but at the same time he's showing even just the slightest bit of remorse, just a little bit, towards his parents and his coworkers and, and friends or, quote, anybody they may have harmed.
0: Yeah, they, they just, both make an well, apology. So
1: Nobody knows.
0: Yeah. They both make an apology to their parents. Dylan states, Hey, mom, gotta go. It's about half an hour before our little judgment day. I just wanted to apologize to you guys for any crap this might instigate as far as it becomes inaudible or something. Just now I'm going to a better place than here. I didn't like life too much, and I know I'll be happier wherever the fuck I go. So I'm gone. Goodbye. And then Eric takes the camera from him and says, yeah, everyone I love, I'm really sorry about all this. I know my mom and dad will just be fucking shocked beyond belief. I'm sorry, all right? I can't help it. And I think that that's very telling of Eric. I mean, he literally just couldn't separate himself from this desire to be extremely violent. Yeah, and it's
1: odd. It's like, was that a potential glimpse into Eric's Realizing that he has this complexity about him, did he did he realize that he was like, you know, this is what you're going to do? But I guess you know, you can't you can't control what was in his mind and what his true his true motives were because I mean he made a list of people he wanted to kill and not one person on that list died.
0: Not one. Yes, and that's super interesting. Like I can't quite wrap my mind around it because even even when he pulled up to the school, Brooks Brown the guy we were just talking about who you know, was on Eric's website's hit list he tells, and somewhere in my notes I have like the quote or whatever but he actually tells Brooks to go home. He's like get out of here man, or whatever he says because he pulls up, he pulls up to the school, um, you know to get ready for this you know, horrific tragedy and Brooks comes up to him and says something about him missing a test, and he just tells him to leave.
1: I did read uh, Brooks' book that he had released um, about five or ten years after the shooting, and um, he said it was very odd that Eric wasn't in a couple of his classes that day because they had quizzes, and at this point in time, him and Eric were civil towards each other, I don't think they were at the capacity of friendship they were beforehand, um, but they, they were they were okay. And you know, finally around some time, obviously in the in the um, late morning, they, Eric pulled up to school and Brooks stopped by, smoking a cigarette, went up and was like, "Hey, where the fuck are you? Like, we had a quiz in uh, philosophy today, and he knew Eric loved philosophy. Go figure." And uh, and Eric just smiled and was like, "It doesn't matter anymore, man. Just go home." and Brooks said that he knew in his gut Eric was not joking but he wasn't going to question him because he had no idea what he was doing but he just looked Brooks in the eye and said Brooks man I like you just go home get out of here when at one point in time I mean that was Eric's opportunity to pull out a gun and just put put the bullet in Brooks' head he could have done it right then and there and he just smiled and said go home and Brooks said I don't think he had made it home He walked home from school, and by the time he got home, people were already making phone calls about a shooting at the school, just to put it into perspective. And then and he knew in his gut that it was Eric, and what, an hour or two later, Eric and Dylan's faces were all over the news.
0: And I think that that just goes to show that at some point, at least for Eric, it didn't become about, it wasn't about the hit list anymore. It was really just this drive to do something horrible.
1: I don't think he would have been satisfied with life until he did something to that capacity. And I truly wish this had never happened. But if I feel like if it did not or he hadn't committed suicide at the end because he said he refused to go out by cops, he'd rather take his own life, then he would have done something, I think he would have done things even worse. And there's not not much worse than, than shooting kids in a school, but
0: I think he would have just terrorized a lot more people if he had the opportunity to. Oh, absolutely. Um, jumping back to the basement tapes real quick, there's just something that I want to point out because I feel like this is also very telling, and it speaks volumes about who Dylan was as this, again, like, lost, very sensitive teenager, but, you know he's part of the basement tapes he's trying on his outfit for the day of the shooting you know like any girl would do before like going out on a Saturday night and just like a girl might say he's you know looking at himself in the mirror and complaining saying I'm fat on this side and he starts bitching about how he looks fat with all the stuff on and I just think it goes to show that Dylan just, He just didn't get it. Like, he really just didn't get it. All of this was so over his head. And his biggest concern in all of this is, you know, I look fat in the trench coat with the guns tucked in to the pockets or whatever.
1: Yeah, it's crazy that he was more concerned about his appearance from a self-conscious point of view as opposed to... Hey, does it look like I'm holding a bunch of weapons in my coat, and we'll get caught? You know, it's crazy that that's not his, process, his thought process. His man, if I run into a, a cute girl, she's going to think I look bad. It's like, oh my god, what what a glimpse of being a teenager when you're when you're plotting to to commit one of the worst crimes in history. You know,
0: and that's where his priorities lie. Is you know. Do I look okay in my in my outfit to shoot up my school and kill you know all these people? So the plan for the day was that they wanted to upstage Waco and the Oklahoma City bombing. So they specifically chose April nineteenth because you know it was the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. It was the anniversary of Waco. And as it turns out, they're not able to get their ammunition that day. So they, you know, they do it instead on April 20th. So again, um, you know, part of this whole skewed uh, reality surrounding the Columbine case is a lot of people think that they did it on purpose on April 20th because it was Hitler's birthday. But again, this is just a myth. They wanted to do it on April 19th, and they couldn't because they didn't have the resources yet.
1: I think a lot of people want to tie the occurrence of it being on the 20th with, um, you know, of Hitler's birthday because a lot of people, uh, you know, wanted to out Eric as a neo-gazi. He very well could have had racist roots, you know? I believe he just hated everybody. Um but I think he also, he was very into German culture, he loved German bands, you know what I mean, he loved um, KMFDM and Rammstein, and he could understand what they were saying, he he could speak German very well, um, and I think he was just into pissing people off, you know, because he, I don't think he has on. he may have had swastikas on things, but he like Hitler and wanted to piss people off, and in a lot of his journal entries, he used a lot of racial slurs, aiming at everybody. But at the same time, he, he, he hated
0: everybody. He truly hated everybody. He just viewed everyone as being beneath him, which is a very dangerous mindset to have, especially in an 18-year-old boy.
1: It, it, it makes you think when it really set in. You know, we don't know much because he moved around so often and, you know, if he was in a set spot like Dylan, you know, I feel like we could know maybe a little bit more about him growing up, but because he bounced around literally all over the country until he settled in Colorado, I think he was in eighth grade maybe, seventh or eighth grade, um, but that's a lot, that's moving around your whole life, not having stable friendships and and building trusting relationships with people it's crushing my friends are some of the most important aspects in my life I can't imagine not having that stability
0: growing up absolutely it leads you to wonder if you know if he had a more stable environment or he wasn't always kind of searching for this feeling of belonging somewhere if it would have had a difference on you know his mental outlook We never know. So fortunately, I suppose, I mean, this is a tragedy regardless, but, you know, Eric and Dylan were not able to achieve the amount of tragedy of Waco or the Oklahoma City bombing. But that was essentially the plan. So the plan of the day was that they were going to set off a bomb in the park that was going to serve as a distraction and get authorities away from the school. Then they were going to detonate two propane bombs in the cafeteria to kill the hundreds of students that were eating lunch, as well as the ones who were in the library above the cafeteria. While everyone was swarming for the exits, they were going to gun down the remaining students. And then last but not least, they were going to ram their cars, which were loaded with more propane explosives into arriving first responders, TV news teams, and police, But as we all know, we should be glad, I guess, that Eric Harris sucked at making bombs because fortunately most of the bombs didn't go off, which led to a lot less carnage than what they had intended.
1: Yeah, which is interesting because, like we said, Eric was a very smart kid. Like most psychopaths, uh, very charming, very intelligent, Eric was a smart kid. So, and, and his dad had, you know, intense, you know, military training, so it's, it, it's odd to me that Eric really fucked up at this. I mean, not one of them, one of them ended up going off when nobody was in the uh, okay. cafeteria at one point, but, uh, you know, he, he really, really fucked up because their, their end count was 13 when it could have been, oh, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds.
0: Absolutely. So their their total arsenal um, was two sawed-off shotguns, uh, two 9mm guns, um, 99 bombs, including two 20-pound propane bombs, and the two booby-trap bombs that were in their cars. So, and I'm trying, I don't know that I necessarily wrote down notes on any of this, but again, we kind of touched on this. They were not old enough. Until, like, Eric turned 18 right before the shootings to purchase any guns. So, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, was it Dylan's prom date that actually went to the gun show with them and she was 18 and she signed off on the purchase of the guns?
1: You are absolutely correct. Her name was Robin Anderson. Um, she went to the prom with Dylan on April seventeenth, nineteen 1999, which is, was three days before the shooting, which they were planning to. So it's just crazy to think that um, Robin had unknowingly purchased a gun and gone to the prom with one of the killers. And within 72 hours, you know, there would be a slaughtering at her school. It's just crazy to think that, you know, she was interrogated by police afterwards, and she ended up being let go, because she, she, I I truly believe she had no inkling on, you know, anything that was going to happen.
0: Oh, absolutely. I definitely don't think she knew at all. I want to say they told her it was for a hunting trip.
1: Yes, and then, and, um, they had taken some friends out into the woods at one point, um, to, like, shoot, um rolling pins and quote work on their uh, aim for hunting and, you know, you know, going to the, to the shooting range and stuff like that. Just, you know, typical hobby stuff, not crossing their minds that, you know, if anything would escalate
0: to how it did. Yeah. I think she thought it was completely recreational. We have to remember too. I mean, it, I guess it's hard for us to really think about because we live in the Philadelphia area and it's like more urban, but I mean, this is, like, rural Colorado. That's what people do for fun. I think mean, they go out in the woods, and they shoot, and they hunt. So nothing was really fishy about this to her.
1: Yeah, you know, if somebody, you know, who was particularly in the inner city that I knew didn't really hunt, you know, asked me to do that, it would raise suspicion. But out there, and at that point in time, it was, you know, I
0: feel like culturally it was completely different for being in that part of the country. And they purchased the guns at a gun show. And again, I, I, should, I should have written some of this stuff down. But they, something about there's some law with the gun shows or something where you don't need to have a license in order to purchase guns through this like traveling show. So it, it,
1: this is also a, a very creepy coincidence. Um, I was watching. Um, a special, of course, a special on line that I had yet to see. And uh, Daniel Mauser's father, and uh, Daniel Mauser was, I believe, one of the children killed in the library. Um, he had cracked out at dinner a couple weeks prior to the shooting and said, Hey, Dad, uh, I learned about something called the Brady Bill loophole today. And it's where um, it's the gap in laws for, like you said, traveling. You know, hand. Um, I'm sorry, gun shows where you can legally purchase a handgun. Um, you know, I think without certain transfers and, and records and whatnot. And oddly enough, one of the the guns purchased through this loophole was the gun that killed
0: him. It's it's just like unfathomable. It's just hard to believe that such a loophole even existed.
1: Yeah, and it's, I, I remember watching the interview of his father just, you know, and his, and his dad didn't really want to go out and protest anything, but he is now a huge, um, you know, leader in, in, in safety and, and um, control. And like you said, we don't want to touch on political topics, but, um, you know, I think knowing that you're killed, your, your, your kid was killed by a gun that was... Purchase not
0: thoroughly is obviously even more heart wrenching than losing a child, let alone, you know? Oh, 100%. So, here we are the day of the shootings. It's 11, 10 a.m., and Eric and Dylan arrive separately in their cars. And they walk into the cafeteria, and they place the two duffel bags, with each containing a 20-pound propane bomb, that's set to go off at 11 17 and something that i find to be so crazy about this is that um there are no security camera footage of this happening because it said that there was a tape change like pretty much at the exact time that they were placing the duffel bags which i don't know if that was something that they were aware of i don't recall reading anything about that but it's just kind of ironic
1: yes it is its something else that makes you go, hmm, you know, there's there's a lot of unanswered questions with this, but there's a lot of very odd conspiracies around it, which could go on for days, but um, it's just another uh, a little odd thing that plays into, you know, how it unfolded.
0: Absolutely. So, 1117 comes and goes, the bombs don't go off, so Eric and Dylan, you know, begin to open fire at approximately 1119. And their first victim is Rachel Scott. She was shot twice. She's sitting outside with Richard Castaldo, and he is also shot and paralyzed, but survives. Um, so you know they go on to at that. This was this occurred outside the school, um, and I believe something else that you know I found to be pretty crazy is that Rachel's body was like right outside the school. So she was actually being run over by other students, her body as they exited the school. And not only that, but her body was left there for some time. Like I want to say at least a day, I guess while, you know, they had the SWAT team there and everything trying to figure out what's going on. Like they just left her body lying there and everyone else's as well. But I mean, she's literally lying Outside, I can recall her parents being very upset about that. And, I mean, whose parents, who wouldn't be if your child is, is dead on the sidewalk and they won't let you remove her body?
1: It, 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 there's, there's actually a, a picture, it may have been from Cullen's book, um, but it's devastating. It's just an aerial view of the um, school when kids were still exiting and you just see her body in the corner completely untouched. And it was like that for hours, even after Dylan and Eric had, by shooting and had already committed suicide. They just let it lay there for hours and hours, which was, so it just kind of kind of added to the heartbreak, I feel.
0: And one of the things that's very interesting is, so Eric and Dylan go into the school and they're wearing trench coats, but I guess at some point the trench coats come off and then there becomes confusion that there's actually more than just two shooters. So even though for an extended period of time there was no activity, they didn't know how many people were involved, where they were, if they were still alive, because as we know, again I said at 11.10 a.m Eric and Dylan show up and by approximately 1208 they're you know they take their own lives
1: crazy to think that in that short amount of time, the amount of sheer chaos that ensued in that school. Um, But to be completely honest with you, uh, they kind of wandered around for a while. You know, there was the initial chaos and shock, but they, you know, students recall hiding in classrooms um, for hours and just hearing them kind of like shooting at lockers, you know, wandering around and they could have kicked down doors and mowed down so many more people. So it's just odd to think that they, they truly didn't use their time in a valuable manner. The maximum destruction in which they wanted to ensue.
0: Right, they got bored. And, and actually, Dylan wasn't participating much regardless. It was mostly Eric anyway. But again, it just kind of show goes to show how... You know much of a psychopath Eric was. You know he he was waiting for this. You know for he had been planning this for years, and it finally gets to that moment, and it's like not what he wants it to be, and he's like, eh, and gets over and is over it. And they they wanted to plan this totally epic you know tragedy, and in the end they killed twelve students, one teacher, um, themselves, and only wounded twenty three other people.
1: Yeah, and if I'm correct, um, because of the guns they had, uh, because of who had which guns, Eric killed ten, and Dylan killed three. So Eric Eric did most of the killing, but I think Dylan just wanted to do it just to see how it would feel and kind of follow Eric's suit, but I feel like he kind of just did it because,
0: you know, he wanted to be there for Eric, and he was going to die anyway, so what the hell. Yeah, again, always looking... in a couple minutes, he was going to put a bullet in his own head, so... Right, always looking for Eric's approval. This is what Eric wanted him to do, so he went along with it. So now you mentioned earlier that this was, you know, CNN's... Like, this was the biggest coverage CNN, you know, ever had. Like, their TV ratings, um because what was so interesting about this was because Littleton was so close to Denver, Denver news, cru- news crews were like able to get there as everything was kind of already unfolding and I think that that's a big part of why there was so much like confusion and myths surrounding this case because you've got these young kids who are coming out of this school saying this that and the other and it's being, you know, produced to the nation and people are picking up on all these things, there's no time for people to get their facts right.
1: It, it, um, you're absolutely right, and it, everybody wants to know who and why and what and how and when, and, you know, what Colin touched so well on this is um, how the media almost just manipulated these poor kids who or just to experience something so traumatic that your brain cannot figure out any type of logic when you just watched half your friends get shot. Like, if they're running to the kids, who was it? What were they wearing? How are you feeling? Um, Who's dead? And it's it's like, you know, the kids wanted people to hear their story, but I think it was just, it was brought out in such a a wrong way for rating essentially.
0: They absolutely had no time to process what was even happening before they had a microphone and a camera in their face, you know, asking them what happened. They don't even know what happened. They are probably, they're all in complete shock. And yet they're being forced to kind of process that information without, you know, any parental support or Anything like that, just strangers in their face, you know, what just happened? You're right, after watching their friends get murdered right in front of their face.
1: You know, and it goes into touch about, you know, the trench coat mafia, which which we now all know they had absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, Dylan and Eric wore trench coats because they looked badass and they could conceal weapons. It had nothing to do with that click of kids, it had nothing to do with God. It had nothing to do with Marilyn Manson, but like you said, they were looking to, to, to blame something. And Brooks Brown in his book even said, "The thing is, I grew up with these kids. We all like the same type of music. You know, I like the same type of music. Eric was Nine Inch Nails is one of my favorite bands. I would never fathom going out and shooting a bunch of people ever. And they were just looking for, for something to blame, like you said, to help them go to sleep
0: at night. Absolutely. They, you know, as we already said, they targeted Marilyn Manson, and there's no documentation of Eric Rudillon listening to Marilyn Manson at all. They do confirm that, you know, they were fans of KMFDM and Ramstein, and um, they played the video game Doom. But again, I don't believe that music or video games influence people to make these types of decisions because how many people out there? listen to these i mean these are popular bands that's a popular video game and then you have these two idiots who go and shoot up their school and all of a sudden it gets ruined for everyone and you know marilyn manson even said in an interview last year that the columbine error destroyed his entire career um rammstein released a statement saying you know that uh The members have no lyrical content or political beliefs that could have possibly influenced such behavior. Uh, Members of Ramstein have children of their own in whom they continually strive to instill healthy and nonviolent values. And that was their statement after it occurred. It just, you can't possibly put the blame on something like this. If, you know, they want to blame
1: violent video games for an influence of this when, you know, I'm sure Eric knew he the things he did because of his dad. And um, I believe that Eric also had a book called uh, The Anarchist Cookbook, if I recall. And it literally teaches you step by step how to make bombs. Right. But they're concerned about a guy wearing makeup at two different colored contacts and video games where you pretend to shoot, you know, whatever, when in reality, they have. Such immense
0: tools for
1: them to execute this without
0: any of these influences. Yeah, you're hearing so much more about Marilyn Manson than you're hearing about this loophole at the gun show. You know, let's think about what actually led to these kids getting these guns. It wasn't because they listened to Marilyn Manson, it was because they went to a gun show where they were allowed to purchase guns without a license.
1: Friends, um, I believe Dylan had attempted to, but was denied. And once he was denied purchase, is when Robin Anderson purchased the guns for them. Um, and then we all know they had been working on little pipe bombs and, um, you know, crickets—I believe they're called—and things like that. But you know, once Eric turned 18, it was it was game over. And um, you know, even though he had been in trouble with the law, um, he was still able to legally purchase. Um, but you know he had a, he had a spot off shotgun in which he named Arlene, and like Dylan had a Tech Nine at one point. Like that's insane. A seventeen year old kid with a Tech Nine.
0: Right. Who's writing about how depressed he is in his journal? Like it's just a recipe for disaster, one hundred percent. So
1: and, you know I know I know gun person, but uh you know. I I believe it's a very powerful weapon to have in the hands of someone who, you know, truly wanted to harm themselves
0: and, and other people. Right, like they can't even rent a car, but they're purchasing guns at a gun show. It's just, it's so wild to me. So we know that the carnage left behind was not what, They wanted it to be, fortunately, but, you know, there was a lot that came out of, you know, the few people that they did um, either murder or wound, um, you know, that kind of caused another, more controversy in this case, um, one of which being the whole thing with Cassie Bernal. So, with everything going on inside this tragedy, for some reason, I don't know why this gets to me so much. It's just so bizarre to me. So, again, anyone who's already familiar with Columbine will know 17-year-old Cassie Burnell, she's one of the 10 victims of the library, and the library is where most of, uh, you know, the killings took place. That was the area of the most carnage. And, you know, supposedly, as the story goes, Dylan had a gun pointed in her face Asked her if she believed in God. She says yes. Dylan pulls the trigger and kills her. Then all the. Which
1: we learn that potentially (laughs) that
0: might not be the case. Yeah, I mean, you've got people worldwide singing Cassie's praises for being a religious martyr, and then all of a sudden it comes to light that she was not the girl who had been willing to die for her belief in God. It was actually um, it was actually a girl named Valine Schnur, and I'm probably butchering her last name. She was shot, um, apparently, you know, before the exchange about God even occurred. But unlike Cassie, she did survive. And this was brought to light by Emily Wyant, who was a girl hiding under the table with Cassie. And this whole thing came from a student named Craig who had heard the interaction mistaken and mistakenly thought it was Cassie saying it and not Val. So, again, he gets out of the library, the news cameras are in his face, and he tells the story saying, oh, this girl Cassie said this, and then all of a sudden it completely blows up, spreads like wildfire, and, you know, none of it is even true. And her mom goes on to write this best-selling book called she said, yes, the unlikely martyrdom of Cassie Burnell. And it's all based on something that isn't even true.
1: It's, and it's, um, it's crazy. I saw an interview later with Val and she said, and this hit me too, um, with like, you know, there was a lot of, uh, gatherings at churches because, uh, you know, religion pretty much ran, uh, Littleton and that, at that point, And, um. Churches were always fighting to kids come in and, and, you know, to help cope. But Val uh, said at one point in time that there was more damage done to her life because of what the evangelical Christians did with this case than the actual shooting itself. And it goes into play how, people, you know, I'm not religious whatsoever, um, but how the church ran with this story and made it into something it it wasn't and did horrible things to other people um to the point that it's them even more than you know the, uh, the actual
0: shooting itself yeah they refused to accept that it wasn't her and that this hadn't happened you know because again they had made it this huge deal and it just it comes down again to all these myths surrounding Columbine because Going into reading Colin's book, I thought that this was a true thing. It turns out, nope, wasn't Cassie, never happened. I mean, it did happen, but certainly not in the way that it was thought to be. And, you know, I can recall reading Colin's book and they were talking about Cassie's mom. And in a lot of ways, her writing this book was how she, you know, coped with the death of her daughter. And then she has to find out she wrote this book for nothing,
1: yeah, that's got to be heavy, too, and, and, and I can only imagine how any of these parents feel with any any victim of any shooting, um, but it, it probably was heartbreaking that, you know, this was something that she probably was convinced for herself that happened, and, and her daughter went out in a brave in a and peaceful and religious way, when in reality, if it, it, it happened that way, and unfortunately, she was, she was slaughtered under a library table, which is horrible to say,
0: Yeah, everything she thought she knew about her daughter's death was not true. Which is even more devastating, I feel like, than it
1: happening in
0: the first place. Absolutely. Not only do you have to deal with that, but then you have to also deal with the controversy of, you know, finding out that, you know, it didn't happen the way that you thought it did, even after, you know, having written a book about it. Another um, student death that really struck me was Patrick Ireland. Um, He was referred to as the boy in the window. Um, You know, local media arrived in the thralls of this tragedy, and his escape from the school was broadcast live to the country. And... You know, not for the faint of heart, but I will put the video up on the blog as well in addition to the transcripts for the basement tapes. But this is hard to watch, man. I mean, first of all, let me just say, he he suffered two gunshots to the head and one to the leg, and these knocked him unconscious. He eventually did regain consciousness, and he spent three hours dragging his critically injured body toward the window of the library. The whole time, which is, I'm sure, why it took him three hours, he's going in and out of consciousness because he's lost so much blood. He eventually makes it to the window, gets the attention of the SWAT team, and basically rolls himself over the broken glass of the window and into their arms. And it's being broadcast live on television for everyone to watch. And it's just... Absolutely excruciating.
1: It's, it's so rough. It's so rough, and it's crazy that the one image I have of Columbine from when I came home from school that day, '99, I was in eighth ninth grade. Um, I came home from school that day. I already knew it happened, but I turned the TV on and I watched him being dragged out the window, and that was when it was like, oh my God, this is not just something that happened, like. This is what I just came from. I just came from high school. This is that could have been one of my friends,
0: and um, it could have been uh, because I was the same age too. Watching that footage, yeah, it makes you wonder, right? Like you said, it could have been one of my friends. It could have been me, and that's really scary. Which and another interesting point that I want to make, and I didn't recall this until I read. Colin's book, and, um, you know, I'm originally from Collingswood, New Jersey. I went to Collingswood High School, and all of a sudden I'm I'm reading about kind of the aftermath uh, part of Cullen's book where he talks about other, um, you know, shooting or planned shootings that happened after Columbine that were kind of like a nod to Columbine, and he says something about Oakland, New Jersey, and I'm like, what the fuck? And then it all started coming back to me and I'm like texting my friends from school and I'm remembering there was, and I'm trying to think of his name, I think it was Matt Shepard? But there was this kid who went to my high school, Um, he was from Oakland, Oakland and Collingswood both went to the same high school, and he had this hit list and he hijacked a car and then shortly after that was apprehended by police, but he was intending on shooting up the school. And I believe at the time, no, I was definitely not in in high school yet. I was still, I guess, either, I don't know, I can't remember exactly. Um, but he was, you know, planning on shooting up Collingswood High School. And it was just so crazy to me sitting there reading that book and being like, oh my God, I completely forgot that this had even happened I mean we could be sitting here having an entirely different conversation you know about school shootings if police had not apprehended this guy I mean it could literally happen anywhere it almost happened in my hometown
1: and you never think it's going to happen to you until it does and that's something that I've experienced in life with different situations and I'm sure everybody does and you never think it's going to happen to you it,
0: it, until it actually does and it puts things into perspective. Absolutely, 100%. And now I feel like compelled to research this because if, if that's not his name and I don't think it is, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Uh, just give me a moment here. Again, should be better prepared here. Hmm. I don't know if I'm going to find it right now.
1: Well, it's, it's touching on um, you know how the police apprehended that individual, which is you know a good thing. Um, a lot of people over the years now have been very, very critical on the Wilton PD and all of the um, all of the uh, you know law enforcement that went into apprehending the situation and taking control of it, and um, you know, you know they got Patrick Ireland which was amazing,
0: but, like, what about, you know, Dave Sanders, touching on him? Oh, absolutely. And just not to cut you off really quick, I said Matt Shepard, who, you know, I knew that name resonated with me somehow, and I knew it wasn't right. Uh, Matt Shepard was the kid who had been beaten, tortured, and and killed, uh, you know, near Colorado back in 1998. This kid's name was Matt Lovett. So just to clarify, because that's a completely different case, Matt Shepard had nothing to do with this obviously um, but yeah so jumping back to Dave Sanders I think Cullen's book even opens you know talking about how much you know Columbine and the school and the students meant to this gym teacher I mean it was everything to him
1: it's, uh, they did everything that they could to help him Um,
0: Yeah, I mean, there were people performing CPR, like, um, there were...
1: Everything, I mean, students. I mean, students did everything that they could to help this man stay alive. And they kept him alive for hours when he was just pouring out blood. And, um, it goes to show how much this teacher meant to these kids, the impact that he, he... He had taught Columbine for close to... 20 or 30 years and and was close to retiring and it goes to show that the impact these teachers had on these kids.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they loved these, they absolutely loved these teachers. I'm trying to recall, what was the name of the principal? Because he was very big in Colin's book as well. Uh,
1: Yes, um, I can find that out and the, the kids loved him and he was the one who spoke consistently after the shooting um, to the children about it and let them uh, heal and, and speak and, and, you know, be around him. And, and I think he was a crucial part in the healing process that has occurred since.
0: Yeah, and Dave Sanders, the teacher who passed, was his best friend. So not only does he have to experiences tragedy at school and he loses, you know, students are killed, but not only one of his staff members, but his best friend is killed as well. And and of course the controversy surrounding Dave Sanders death was that you know, there was so much hesitancy that happened. I mean, the SWAT team was there and they just wouldn't enter the school, but mind you, at this point in time, Eric and Dylan are dead in the library. But no one's going into the school. So Dave Sanders is, you know, this beloved gym teacher, and he's lying on the floor of, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was one of the science lab floors, and what? he's... It was
1: science room three. I remember it, just Cullen repeated it consistently in the book, uh, science room three, and also Frank DeAngelis is the name of the principal that was... Um, current during Columbine and he retired only three or four
0: years ago so he definitely stayed around afterwards and I believe I can recall in Colin's book they talked about he really battled with whether or not he was going to return as the principal and I'm glad to see that he did and I didn't know that he had just retired recently so I think that's really good to hear because I think it it leaves a lot for the students to kind of, like, look up to, and he didn't give up on them, and he didn't just leave.
1: It shows the love that he had for that school and that he needed to be there for them. He, he needed to, and I remember, I recall Cullen saying that uh, Frank's wife was like, they need you out there, man. They need you. Go speak to them. Let them speak to you. You are their principal. You have always guided them. Why would you not guide them now? And he's like, You're right. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I applaud him immensely as a human being for what he has done for those
0: kids. Absolutely. Um, but I just wanna to touch back on on Dave Sanders. So you know he's he's there in the he's there in the science lab and you know they're performing CPR and they've called nine one one on multiple occasions in reference to his condition. They were told help is on the way and no one ever came. And you know I don't know a lot about this necessarily, so I'm not sure if this is necessarily the best statement to make. But correct me if I'm wrong. Aren't SWAT teams trained to be able to handle? This situation, I guess, you know, the potential of bombs being present and things like that, um, you know, there's probably some sort of policies in place about how they go about handling that. But the problem was this man, you know, with no one doing anything, he died when he probably could have survived had he gotten timely medical um medical treatment and actually in August of 2002 the Jeffco County Sheriff's Office settled with his daughter for $1.5 million for his wrongful death.
1: Yes, I believe his daughter's name was Connie um, and uh, it's heart wrenching because uh, there was a note that one of the kids that was uh, helping keep him alive his last words were to my family I, I love them um, and, it, and it's also, because they knew that he was in there they had written on a whiteboard one bleeding to death and held it up in the window the entire time they knew he was in there they were making phone calls they were begging 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 for assistance and you know I'm not up to keen on SWAT protocol to enter buildings but I feel like with the vast majority of law enforcement that was there, and I know they had to be careful because they may have been potentially live bombs and and other booby traps set up, but I absolutely think more could have been done and Dave Sanders could still be alive today.
0: Well, yeah, and, and clearly because, you know, they don't just settle lawsuits like that for nothing, you know what I mean? I think that they are very aware that they messed up and you know what what a horrible death to have to experience you know to literally be bleeding out on a floor probably going in and out of consciousness the same way that Patrick Ireland was just literally all of your volume becoming depleted I mean it's just that's that's excruciating absolutely horrible to even comprehend Yeah, and it uh, it was,
1: you know, I feel like it was tough enough losing, you know, a bunch of students, but um, just to lose a a very credible teacher on top of it, um, I feel like the students also could have potentially felt betrayed because not the amount of potential was done. If I'm correct, Columbine was not declared to enter until about 4.30 in the afternoon, and Eric and Dylan had been dead for hours at that point. Now, they were still figuring out other things that could have potentially gone off, but I just think uh, movements were slow, and as the years have gone by, they Jeff Co. And, and other officials have received a lot of criticism over the way they handled
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I saw uh, in my research a Really compelling photograph, actually, of Dylan's mom, Sue, and Dave Sanders' daughter. Uh, I believe you said her name was Connie. Um, at the Columbine Lake Memorial site, and they're actually holding each other. And I think that there's something really powerful to be said about that. It, it definitely is.
1: Um, I give Sue Klebold a lot of credit uh she wrote, ended up writing a book, which I've yet to read. I'm very excited, to. She is a huge advocate for mental health and mental health awareness and suicide awareness. And uh, she has an excellent TED Talk out there, if anybody's interested, if you just search Stu Mold under TED Talks. Um, she talks about Dylan and growing up and how she was a parent and her activism now, but she opens her segment with, if my son has ever caused you or your family any harm at any point in time, I'm truly sorry. And you can just see this this poor woman who was nothing but a good parent to her kids. And, you know, a lot of hate was put onto her for many years. Because, you know, you got to put the blame somewhere.
0: Oh, absolutely. And uh,
1: that kind of warms my heart that you know,
0: those two were together. Definitely. And I mean, I am not a parent, so I can only imagine. But I mean, can't be an easy job. You can't possibly be over your kid's shoulder 24-7. And if you are, then you're not a good parent either. So it's like, there really is no way to kind of win. But I think that she's doing the best that she can in the situation that she was given by becoming an advocate for mental health and trying to prevent anyone else from having to experience this horrible thing that she's had to go through.
1: And um, I give her a lot of credit for, uh, for being as strong as she still is and wanting to take this complete tragedy of not only losing her own child, but the pain he's caused, and trying to turn it around and spread as much love and awareness and positivity as possible, which I feel like is the only way you can do with something like this, is bring awareness and in, in hopes that this doesn't happen again.
0: Yeah, you really have to try and bring a light to the darkness of the situation, I think that that's definitely what she's doing, and it's very, you know, I commend that. Absolutely, 100%. All right, well, I don't know, Erica, if you have anything else that you want to add, but I think we kind of covered everything. we pretty much touched
1: on everything. Um, you know, I'll eagerly be waiting the next five or so years for those basement tapes to be released just because I think it'll be like the closing chapter on really, you know, why why they did it and we could use it as tools to help prevent it. And I hate saying that <laughs> our streak since 1999 in this country of school shootings has not been great. Um, so hopefully with every one more victim, we can push to have something done about it.
0: Definitely. I mean, something, something needs to be done because you know, we can't keep losing kids like this. I mean, it's hard enough seeing people reach untimely deaths as it is, let alone kids who are in high school. And I mean, I think everyone who has experienced high school can agree that it's not I mean, there are some people, don't get me wrong, who thought high school was the greatest thing that ever happened to them. But me personally, you know, high school wasn't easy. I can only imagine what it's like to be a high school student now and on top of everything else that they have to deal with, especially in the age of technology and social media that they have now. But now you have to go to school and wonder, you know, is that the last time I'm going to say, you know, goodbye to my mom and dad? It's, it's definitely
1: horrifying um... You know, my full-time job is being a kindergarten teacher, and I know, you know, that's not high school, but from a safety standpoint, I feel so safe when I am in my classroom, and school should be safe. You should feel safe while you're getting an education, and the fact that these kids have a legitimate worry for teenagers in the United States in 2018 is dying in high school because of getting shot, is blows my mind.
0: It's unfathomable that we're even like having a conversation to sit here and talk about this, you know. You you wanna wonder, you know, what what if things were different and we were sitting here and we were having this conversation about Columbine and, and talking about, you know, everything that went into effect to prevent something like this from ever happening again. Yet here we are twenty years later and I find it odd when I turn on the news and You know, there isn't a school shooting and not that this, not that this is a school shooting, but I just right before we started this episode and we are recording it, it won't get released until, you know, the end of July, but I just saw on my cell phone before I gave you a call that there was a shooting at a newspaper in Maryland. It just is, it's never, it feels as though it's never going to end.
1: Scary that something that tragic pops up on your phone and you kind of don't even flinch because you're so used to hearing about it. And, you know, Columbine rocked this country. But there there now has been deadlier shootings since Columbine and we're just kind of like, wow, that sucks.
0: And our reactions should never be that. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, and even in the Virginia Tech shooting, which I think is still considered to be the deadliest school shooting to this day. Um, And I, I can't remember the shooter's name off the top of my head, but he, like, looked up to Eric and Dylan. So you have to kind of think about it, and you have to kind of think about it in terms of, you know, they... And I'm not saying that it wouldn't have happened if Columbine hadn't happened, but, I mean, he's sitting there saying that he was, like, looking up to Eric and Dylan. Like, come on.
1: Uh, Yes, the Virginia Tech uh, shooter killed 32 people and only 17, and he had stated leading up to it um, that he really looked up to Eric and Dylan and their views on life and and, uh, how they executed their things. And there have been multiple attempted copycats that were luckily stopped beforehand, but it's safe to say that Eric and Dylan have single-handedly heavily
0: influenced a lot of young minds on how to handle your
1: problems when that's not how you handle them. Not at all. Not at all. So, I think we
0: pretty much covered everything, though. All right, Erica, thank you so much for coming on today. That was a really great episode. I think we covered pretty much everything. And of course, you know, got to get some of our, our views out there as well because awareness kind of... it not kind of, it really needs to be brought to light in this situation. I mean, something absolutely has to be done. And I'm not saying that this podcast episode is going to make that happen, but, you know, here we are 20 years later, still reflecting back on Columbine and, you know, wondering where, you know, things went wrong. Absolutely. And hopefully
1: it's sooner than later, we make some serious progression on making sure that this
0: isn't a normal occurrence. For sure. All right. Well, thanks again, Erica. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, it was awesome. Yeah, thanks. Anytime, Jen. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. A big thank you again to Erica for joining me on this episode. And thank you guys so much for tuning in. A couple quick reminders before we end. Don't forget to check out our blog at hexfilescollective.com for tons of cool content in between podcast episodes. If you write us a review on iTunes or Stitcher and send it to us along with your mailing address, we'll send you one of our awesome stickers designed by our friend JP. And then don't forget to check out our friends over at Southern Spirits Podcast, Leah and Mitch. Their episodes are hilarious and amazing. I love their southern accents. And uh, I'll see you guys again next month when the moon is full. Bye now.